Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. And we're very happy to welcome two guests for today. First off, I want to say hello to David Gorin, welcoming him from Brooklyn, New York. Hi, David. Hi, Paul. Hi, Eric and Jennifer. Great to be here. And we also have Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. I think you're coming to us from Milwaukee, though, aren't you today, Christopher? Yes, I am today. Wonderful. Thank you both. Uh, We're here to talk about some FCC stuff, uh, and it's sort of two different issues that that in many ways are related, and we'll get in more to that. Uh, First off, we're going to talk about the Pirate Act, which is a piece of legislation you might guess has to do with pirate radio. Given the uh, Congress's uh, tendency to try and and backronym everything, uh, the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act. Um, as well, we're going to talk about a recent decision by the Supreme Court on a case we've been following very closely for a long time uh, with Professor Terry, uh, which is Prometheus v. FCC. Uh, and I just want to jump in, Paul, and- issues. And reframe the uh, the notion of pirate radio for for new listeners. You know, um, we love to talk about the culture of pirate radio here on Radio Survivor. We've done so for five years, and in a lot of ways, many of these radio stations are simply unlicensed community radio stations. They function, they serve a community. They're on the air. They do the same sorts of things that radio stations that we know and love do, who have licenses, but they are outside of uh, they're outside of the law, and and the FCC is coming for them. Yet again this year. Yeah, exactly. And and David, you know, is a Brooklyn-based writer, post-production mixer, field recordist for 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 more than a quarter century. And the project you're known for, your most recent project, uh, is the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map, which is a reason why we've asked you to come on and, and help us uh, put put this act and in, in, into context. And can you can you give us the the quick elevator speech on the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map? Well, the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map is a interactive map where which has three zones in Brooklyn where pirate radio is most active. I've been aware of them for many years going back to the mid-90s or actually further, but the sort of the current phase which serves a largely West Indian population has been in place since the mid-90s. I for years thought, I really need to do something about this. And in 2014, I started to record them and develop some projects uh, related to the map, made some documentaries as well. But I was really intrigued to sort of tie place and sound together. And I was able to get a grant from the Brooklyn Arts Council to get this project underway. And phase two has involved um, adding, we'll now have about a total of over 300 sounds from about 60 different stations, some of which have come and gone. And I've added um, some new features uh, just in the past few months that you can filter by content, by religion, because some of the stations are, are religious broadcasters, by by language, by culture, nationality, and, and music. And uh, there are also four, four kinds of autoplays for the ultimate Pirate Radio Jukebox Experience. That's at PirateRadioMap.com. And David. accompanying that, I'm sorry, is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I, I love your map so much, David. And, and I'm excited that, that you're now 
collaborating with the Radio Preservation Task Force, which I'm a part of as well. So I'm curious, you know, because part of what you're doing is creating this history of pirate radio in Brooklyn as it happens. So what what led to this collaboration with the Radio Preservation Task Force and what what does that entail? Well, I sort of elbowed my way into the 2017 Radio Preservation Task Force meeting and through the good graces of John Anderson and also Josh Shepard, who recently was was the head. Um, and, and we should let really listeners know of, that this is a project of the Library of Congress to preserve the sounds of radio. Right. And and actually, when, when I went to the first conference, I was, I was working on the map and also a documentary for the BBC. And during that same weekend at the RPTF, I interviewed Rosemary, Rosemary Harold, the FCC enforcement chief, while I was in D.C. Um, so basically, since then, I've talked a couple times with Josh about could this be uh, made a partner of the task force, and especially at that 2017 meeting, uh, John Anderson, who is of DYI Media and a scholar of pirate radio, was talking about hidden archives. I think there was a session called Hidden Archives, and pirate radio is definitely a hidden archive. And I think Josh and the other people on the task force saw the importance of having an official home for this. In terms of what's the developing, well, there's been some collaborations with other projects who, who've been interested in doing sound mapping. I'm now can qualify for grant opportunities, training opportunities, and it's, you know, it's just sort of great to throw in with, with the purpose that's going on with the task force. Yeah, this whole idea of mapping seems to be a very rich area that people are excited about. And I was at a recent quarterly meeting for the Radio Preservation Task Force, kind of behind the scenes, and and there was definitely conversation about radio mapping projects, and your project came up. Why, why do you think people are so intrigued by mapping? Well, I think it's because um, radio speaks to place. It creates community in, it could be tight knit in a in an area like Brooklyn. It could be around the world through shortwave radio. And there's just something about the way the signals tie people together that I think bringing in the map element uh, sort of lets you visualize that and hear it at the same time. And it's amazing that uh, these stations, which which of course fly under the radar, uh, at least for a lot of people, kind of by design. Um, have an opportunity to have their culture and and the information and, and, and what they present actually archived in a more official fashion uh, because often, you know, it, it, it goes unrecorded and, and then therefore is much more difficult to remember or reconstruct that record when, when future historians decide to take a second look. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Right. And, and I'm hoping uh, in, in partnering with the task force um, – I was able to join with a nonprofit partner, which was sort of helpful to the process, at Wave Farm, wavefarm.org. Oh. There are transmission arts, and they're actually their roots are in pirate radio as Free 103.9. So um, it's, it's great to join with them and, and to, bring, to bring it to the task force. Yeah, well, then we we'll, can call them friends of the show. Uh, exactly. Wave Farm. We'll, put, we'll have to put a, a whole bunch of things in our show notes because we've done – a number of episodes about Wave Farm, the Air Radio Survivor, 
And last week, we had a board member from Wave Farm on the show, Anna Frizz, talking about transmission oh, art. So everything all kind of ties together. Yeah, they're, they're a community radio station in upstate New York, as well as a transmission arts organization. Right, WGXC. And, and they are now a task force member as well. We sort of came in arm in arm. Fantastic. Um, so, so David Gorin, turning back to the Pirate Act, uh, which is sort of the, the impetus for us to have the conversation today. You know, this act was actually signed into law in January of 2020. And one of the big things it does is it ups the maximum fine for a violation of unlicensed broadcasting to $100,000 and increases the maximum total fine that someone could experience to $2 million. And the FCC had to sort of uh, figure out how it was going to put these fines out there and has published them now in the Federal Register, so we understand that, that they actually go into effect now on April 26th of this year, of 2021. And some other provisions are it allows the FCC to kind of expedite its process of pursuing pirates. Uh, you know, often there's this, it's a very bureaucratic kind of thing where they first have to uh, issue what's known as a notice of unlicensed operation, you know, telling you, we think you're, you're, you're broadcasting without a license, Fall with a, a notice of apparent liability. We think you're liable for a fine, and then on and on and on. So I guess they can skip that first session now, um, and they don't have to. They can just go straight to that a notice of apparent liability, and then uh, the FCC is going to be required to do sweeps, annual sweeps in the top five <laughs> markets where there's pirate activity, such as Brooklyn, such as your backyard there, uh, David. Um, so you know, there's a bunch of things here. And I just wonder, you know, since you've been monitoring uh, the unlicensed reactivity in Brooklyn for quite some time, I mean, do you get a sense that the broadcasters uh, working in your area, the ones that maybe you monitor or hear more frequently, are they aware? Do, they, do you see any signs of any sort of effect on them, this, this act now having been passed a year ago? I have not seen any effect. In fact, starting though I've been listening and logging and recording uh, since 2014, Le- December 2019, I started to make a daily log. So e- every day I'll, I'll listen in the evening, which is th- during the weekday, the stations sign on between four and eight. And then by eight o'clock, there's about 25, 26 on average all from this area. I can hear a few others from Queens and New Jersey. And the number has remained steady. Uh, pretty much for the year. Uh, do they know about it? Anecdotally, from from the few connections, I, I do have a few connections. I don't think they are really keeping track of the laws. It's, it's sort of this ecosystem that has developed over 25 years, and there's a safety in numbers. Uh, they, they certainly have gotten fines before. Stations come and go. Sometimes the station will go off the air that that has been on for 10 years, and it's like, well, what's happening? They may come back. And there seems to be a practice, uh, some operators have told me, that if they get a citation or even an informal visit where they don't get fined but they're told to take the antenna down, they will go off the air for several months, and then they will come back on. Um, sometimes they will come on, you know, much sooner than that. So you know you don't always really know if when a station goes away because they're not the FCC doesn't release all of the information. It seems to me there's been no effect as yet. I mean, there's always been the threat of fines, but there's always been a a statute on the books which allows fines to be reduced to ability to pay. 
So I think as long as that is there, it's probably not going to make that much of a difference. When I did re- interview Rosemary Harold in 2017, they had just fined, for the first time, landlords um, of radio, I think, Tushan Deuce in, in Miami, a Haitian station. And that station remained on the air for a long time after that. I'm, I'm not sure if they're on the air currently, but I, I, you know, historically the enforcement has not seemed to have a lot of problem, have a lot of effectiveness. And what she seemed to be telling me at that time was they want to scare people from going on the air or they want to scare them from going off the air. Like you said, removing the NUO, the notice of unlicensed operation, that used to sort of be like a get-out-of-jail-free pass. If you got the letter, you could go off the air without any further penalty. Now you can just get that fine. But whether the fines can actually be collected, I don't know. I, I know some pirates um, operating in other parts of the country, and, and one did not know anything about the Pirate Act. And when he was told, he said, well, they can't get blood from a turnip, you know. <laughs> so... Um, what, what I have noticed is that when stations have been fined, this happened in Boston when two Haitian stations were were fined, um, and then also in Brooklyn, uh, a station that's on the map, um, Choice Choice Radio on ninety two nine, uh, which you can listen to some samples on the map. They were they were caught. I don't know if they were raided, but they were essentially told, "You can have this very high fine." You know, it might have even been a hundred thousand dollars. This was before the implementation of the act, or you can pay this two thousand dollar fine, sign this piece of paper that says you will not go on the air for the next twenty years, and if you do, you have to pay the big fine. So I think that's the kind of leverage they're trying, and they may continue to try to do that. Um, yeah. And, and Chris, I mean, you you've you've followed the FCC's ability to to, to fine and, and a lot of that that kind of uh, procedural process, you know, what is, what's the likelihood of these additional fines, these, these, you know, nearly doubled fines being collected here? Well, the FCC has a a pretty significant history of assessing large fines, but uh, rarely follows through on the collection of those fines. I've done a series of Freedom of Information Act requests on this for one project or another in the, in the past. And there's a, there's a demonstrable history of the FCC finding people, but not being super serious about actually seeing that money uh, put back into the coffer. The other thing that strikes me about the Pirate Act is you have an untested administrative process here. Administrative agencies are not usually allowed to simply find someone without a proper investigation and a series of steps involved. And I don't I haven't read up on the Pirate Act as much as I want, but what I have read about it, that was essentially my first thought, is that this is decidedly uncommon, uh, that an agency can move this quickly to a fine, because there there's protections for the people who would get these fines, uh, and uh, they would have the ability to challenge these things in federal court as part of an administrative process. And... You know, I don't want to go down the due process road here, but there there's a lot of questions about an agency that would issue a significant fine, and you're talking fine that approaches a million dollars potentially here, uh, without a proper and full investigation. They're not going to be kicking down doors and handing out million dollar tickets. There's a little bit more involved. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, you 
scoff at that, but I mean, that's the reality of the situation. You're not going to see that kind of thing done without it being tested. You know, if the agency were to take this pretty seriously and try to make examples out of a couple of people to spread the word about sort of these new powers, uh, it's not hard to see how at least one of them might try to find somebody to defend them and test whether or not this administrative process is um is legitimate. And I certainly have some questions about it. Uh, it would depend on how it was done. And it's hard to have a, a fully informed opinion until we see the first case. But when we do, uh, how that fine is issued and the process involved in that is certainly going to be uh, something I'll be paying a lot of attention to. So it's sort of a warning shot in a way, or a big flag, but that may not, indeed, the bark may be, may be bigger than the bite to mix my metaphors around all the around these fines but so david you mentioned though that um there's there's been some landlords who've who've been implicated um uh in in with the uh, i guess essentially their renters <laughs> their residents in their buildings who who are uh broadcasting uh without a license or at least allegedly broadcasting without a license so how is it that a landlord can have liability in that way for what uh, their tenants are doing? That's a good question. Well, Chris might be able to speak um, more more to the dynamics of that. But uh, but I do know in December, three stations uh, in Queens or three landlords in Queens were told that they have a pirate radio operator on their premises and that they had 10 days to show evidence that that pirate radio operator was no longer in that building. And then they would be subject to to a huge fine. Uh, so, in, interestingly enough, and I w- they put the frequency numbers of the of the two station of the three stations which were said to be operating within a three block radius of each other in Corona Queens, which in Queens Corona and Flushing seems to be the hot spot for pirate radio activity. And those are there. dense. Those are dense communities, right? I mean, yes. yeah, they're very, very urban. Much so. You know, how many but, how many people live in even in that kind of uh, radius or area? Well, and I just I just want to put in there that if people are broadcasting their pirate radio stations out of their homes that they live in, the threat of being evicted seems like a um the most significant uh stick that we're talking about with this FCC policy to crack down on pirate radio i mean that's a that's a way that that all of this could um be swept under the rug extremely uh aggressively just by having landlords do their dirty work for them it's it's uh it has implications that i'm not i'm not comfortable with and i just to give a little bit of backstory because i was really struck by this at the end of 2020 the fcc you know, announced that they were starting to enforce the Pirate Act by going after landlords, and they warned them that they could be fined up to two million dollars. Right. So, I mean, this is not insignificant. And so, they announced on December seventeenth that they had begun targeting these property owners, which is what you're talking about, David. That you have this example of this right being, actually, playing out. <laughs> th- three of the stations, well, the three stations, they were. Um, Ninety-one-three, which is likely uh, this Dominican format station, one hundred five-five, which is an Ecuadorian station, and ninety-five-nine, which is another Ecuadorian station. Uh, radio explosion hits, and I can hear that station here. There was a long-time West Indian pirate, bo- the Boom station, that had gone off ninety-five-nine, and so I was able to hear radio explosion hits. Uh, 
you know, every night they would come out in the evenings. Um, usually stations are on in the evenings and then all weekend from uh, continuously. So when Dece- December 17th came around, I started to uh, pay close attention. They were still on the air for about four days, and then they went off the air, and I've not heard them since. So it could be that the landlord did something. It it, it may be that it's it's in the person's home, but I think it's from the pirates that I've met and from looking at different websites of, of the pirates, they rent space. They they rent basement spaces. They are behind storefronts. I you know I've heard I've talked to people on the street. They're like, oh well, see that yellow awning behind you know there's a station in the in the back room there or down a bodega steps where someone might be working. So I think that's more common, but uh, but I'm sure it happens in people's homes as well. And that's sometimes why, just as an aside, why stations go off the air. Maybe they're kicked out for another reason, or they or they can't pay the fee anymore. So, but it, but it seems it seems that they outsource it that way. Uh, as another aside, be, I before this happened, and I had been monitoring radio explosion hits for a while um, because, for one thing, they're sort of different from what I hear in Brooklyn, which is mostly West Indian and Ecuadorian. Seems to be one of the lesser formats in pirate radio over New York City, but there's still about five stations city wires that that serve an Ecuadorian population. Uh, well, Radio Explosion Hits was then dominating 95.9. They were in Corona, Queens. And then one day I heard an Orthodox Jewish station, and they are another flavor of station that pops up, and uh, Radio Kodesh. And they were, I found them on the web. They were in Flushing, New York. And what happened next was that Radio Explosion Hits refused to go off the air. Hmm. They like took over the and they pushed Radio Kodesh off the air, and I've not heard them since either. So it's just sort of interesting. There's the stations are sometimes warring with each other. Sometimes they turn each other in. Uh, I've been told by operators of the stations. Hmm. Interesting. You know, yeah. it, it, you know, one thing you mentioned, you know, about the FCC going after the landlords who allegedly are renting space of some sort to an unlicensed radio operator, right? Is that they go to the landlord and say, you know, prove that this station isn't there, which seems very antithetical to the standard of proof we normally have in our legal system in the United States, which is, which is innocent until proven guilty. And this is more sort of proven negative, right? <laughs> right. And, and also the landlord may not know that the station is there. They may have snuck into a shed on the top on the rooftop and put a transmitter there. So what do they do? That, what does the landlord do then? You know, so. exactly. So, you know, does, does that seem to be any more effective or do, it, it's definitely another, another uh, sort of, you know, aspect to this whole story, but from the sounds of it, it doesn't sound like you're all of a sudden uh, learning about or or hearing the effects of mass evictions of of folks who are uh who are you know broadcasting without a license that's that's the only one i can point to but but since it was tied to an event it is it is significant because i it did seem to follow on the other hand in when i read the news about it even though it was announced december 17th i was told that the action happened on november 4th so so the time frame is a little murky in there. I don't know if that's when they did the investigation or I'm not sure in what time frame the landlords were notified. But this station is gone. Now, I haven't been over to Corona, Queens to see if 
if maybe they're at a lower power or they move to a, another building where I don't get their pattern anymore. So it's, it's hard to know for sure. Hmm. Uh, Professor Terry, um, you know, part of this Pirate Act is putting obligations on the FCC, um, you know, including that they have to now perform these annual sweeps, whatever whatever that means. Um, and, you know, the head of the Enforcement Bureau, who, who, who David mentioned just before, uh, told Congress that would cost $11 million dollars. Uh, for them to be able to perform these sweeps. And I don't know, does that mean that, they, that they're intended to drive around Brooklyn using their direction-finding equipment? I mean, sweeping the bands, which is not, generally speaking, something that the FCC is actively engaged in um, in that way. I mean, Chris, how how uh, practical is that, really, given the fact that as, as an agency, uh, the FCC is, has more been cutting back, especially in its enforcement operations? Well, as I understand it, as it relates to the Pirate Act, uh, it's limited to the top five markets where pirate identified pirates are operating. Right. So those will be those investigations will then be conducted out of the field office in those areas. And uh, yeah, I mean that's how you found pirates is with the triangulation. Um, I would think eleven million dollars is probably not enough. Uh, I think that that might be an underbid on what it would take to do this. Now, part of the question is is whether the FCC is going to recycle the old vans or they've got a they've got to design a new equipment. Uh, but as I understand it, and as it was explained to me, the uh, the process is going to be that periodically the commission is going to take all of the complaints that it gets about pirates operating in an area, and it's going to try to find as many in that area as it can in one sweep. Um, and then go after people that way. Whether that's how it actually goes or not is uh, is certainly different. Uh, this goes back a ways, uh, back to before I was even in broadcasting school, which is, well, that was a long time ago, let's put it that way. Um, back then, when the FCC got a pirate uh, complaint, what they would do is they would send somebody out from the field office to see if they could find the pirate, and they would they'd use what was basically hand portable equipment, see if they could pick it up. And then they would try to direction find it that way. And then the person would go to the location and, um, and ask to see the equipment, right. Then, you know, they'd sort of narrow it down to a couple of places and they'd just start knocking on doors. There was a very famous story when I was actually in broadcasting school, an FCC commissioner came, found a pirate. He, he managed to triangulate their position and figured out where they were. He knocked on the door of the uh, pirates and the the people who were there. Uh, he identified himself as an FCC commissioner. He asked to see their gear. He saw all their gear and everything. And before he left, uh, they asked him for his identification. And, of course, the guy had left it either in the hotel or back in D.C., whatever. He didn't have it with him. And they were like, well, you know, you can't do anything to us without actually, uh, you know, Saying you're an FCC commissioner and or FCC investigator and being an FCC commissioner or investigator are two different things. He's like, I need to see some identification before I'll surrender any of this gear to you. So the inspector left and the inspector went and got his ID and came back. And of course, by then the pirates had cleared right. out. Um, and it was the, the 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 moral of that story was is that if an FCC inspector ever comes to a licensed or unlicensed station, always ask them for their ID first. Um, 
was how that was con- conveyed to me in broadcasting school. I have but to back ask, then, we're, using, we're using the terminology sweeps and we're talking about a federal – you know, an arm of the federal government and we're also talking about radio stations that are operated by and for immigrant communities. I'm wondering if there's ever uh, uh, more sinister implications of, of other arms of the government being used to intimidate – well, the, the, the old argument on pirates is, is that they because they're unlicensed, they tend to interfere with stations that do have a license. That's always been the argument for enforcement. Even when Mike O'Reilly was on the commission and, you know, piracy was like his pet, pirate radio was like his pet issue when he was there. Uh, that was always the argument he made, right? That we we have a job to regulate who uses the airwaves and when, and when these people are on, because they're operating sort of outside of these technical guidelines we provide and require of other people, there's interference complaints. And I can tell you from when I was in the broadcasting industry, the only time we ever made it, you know, there were pirates here in Milwaukee, uh, especially on the south side of Milwaukee when I was in broadcasting. And uh, the only time that we ever complained about it was when they were actually jumping onto somebody else's frequency, right? If they were if they were minding their own business in an open spot, nobody said a word about it. But when they, you know, when they jump uh, frequencies or they would, uh, they put themselves in a position where they'd be interfering with the signal and we'd be getting complaints from listeners or something like that. Then we'd report. But otherwise, I mean, even the industry people don't, don't much care, but when pirates often get themselves into trouble and especially the ones who are targeting uh, specific minority groups is when they start selling advertising. That's actually when commercial radio, uh, folks start taking pirates pretty seriously when, uh, people started advertising. There was a when I was at broadcasting school in Oshkosh, there was a pirate that operated out of Amaro, Wisconsin, for a while, and none of the local stations said a word about it. It was kind of humorous that the guy was out there. He was playing really heavy metal in the middle of the night. It was it was kind of funny, uh, but eventually he got enough of a following that he was selling ads for like Joe's used car lot and stuff, and uh, that's when they complained about him. You know, so competition is always that part of it, right? <laughs> yeah. Competition, uh, right? yeah. I hear that argument, but to be there, are, there is a lot of advertising in Flatbush, but right. it's for funeral homes, it's for car services, um, it's for roadie shops, it's for advertising that a commercial station would never. Well, put especially on the air. in New York, they. I mean, those local businesses can't afford it. I mean, really, right? They would not. Yeah. So, so I don't know that you know how threatened a station will be, but. But Michael O'Reilly has levied that argument about New York City and the ad, the ad revenue. When I did interview Rosemary Harold, I said, "Well, are you going to go after the advertisers?" And she said, "No, because of freedom of speech." So I think, but I think O'Reilly did want to do something that would punish the people who advertise on the stations. And but Michael, a very small time. And Michael O'Reilly wanted to kick in the door of anybody involved in pirate radio, and uh, you know. And David Gorin was was my concern. Has that ever come up at all in in the world of pirate radio, where you know because immigrant communities are are using these radio stations to speak to other immigrant communities, has 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 the threat has taking them off the air, has the effort to take them off the air ever drifted over into using these other arms of the government to intimidate them, or is that uh, just just something I made up? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in terms of programming, there there's a lot of uh, free immigration attorney advice, but I, um, I don't know if if um, if they're concerned about 
that. I think for the most part, the pirates here, they feel they, they have a system that works for them, and I don't think they're that worried about the FCC um, for the most part. Uh, they get caught, they go back on. There's a station that I is on nightly that's been on since 1999. So, you know, I think they feel they have a way around it if they get caught, they might go off for six months. That's what someone told me. It's like, well, I'm going to go off for six months and then I'm going to come back on. I think it's intriguing that you described it earlier as an ecosystem, that they have their own radio ecosystem going on that seems to be outside of and sometimes unaware of the other radio ecosystem. Do you get a sense that, and you also talk, David, about how sometimes there are these pirate wars. Do you get a sense that there's a sense of community do pirates talk to each other um not not so much um i think i think there is a rivalry i think in the in the earlier new york city pirate radio era of in the 1980s when it was more sort of the kids playing radio kind of pirate radio they were friends and and also rivals like alan weiner and whot and uh uh 9 fm they kind of worked together, and they they actually would band together and and prank the uh, Judah Monsbach, who was the FCC guy out in the van trying to get the stations, and they would, you know, they would tune in to the VHF channel he was on, and then turn off the transmitter. <laughs> so they, getting they his would... two way radio, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they'd work together. Now, I mean, I've I've talked to a, a pastor of a church that has its own station off the record. And he said, you know, they trade announcements, but and but there's not a lot of cooperation in general. Sometimes I do hear programming of one station on another station, but it could be that those stations are maybe run by the similar people. But I, I've heard in the Haitian community, it's common that people will say, oh, I narked on this station. You know, they took my DJ and I narked on them. Now, who are they narking to? And if they're getting any response, I don't really know. But from from the people I've talked to in the pirated community, they seem to be more worried about each other than the FCC hmm. to a certain degree. So I think think there's both but there there's not that sense of pirate radio community that there was in the 1990s that we're going to change it and we're going to bring in low power licensing i think they're pretty much we're serving our audience and we're just trying to to keep on the air um i do want to the the story about the fcc uh inspector visiting the station uh in my initial research uh about pirate radio uh I ran across a station that I recalled hearing at the time, WBAD, which is a hip-hop station. I actually I made a documentary about them called Outlaws of the Airwaves that was on KCRW's Lost Notes program. And DJ Centronics and his partner, uh, Dr. X, who ran another station, Nasty Radio WJQR, as the, as the activities started to pile up, their frequency, 91.9, which at that time was the, like the the most popular pirate radio channel started to be clogged with other stations coming on the air and they had director direction finding gear. They would wear blue jackets and they would knock on the door and they'd say, uh, show us your transmitter. And they didn't say they were from the FCC, but they tried to convey the notion that, that they were the FCC. And often they got the people to, to turn the transmitter off. And if they, 
couldn't get them to do that, they would cut the wires. Hmm. That voice you just heard is David Gorin. He is uh, a journalist and researcher behind the Brooklyn Pirate Radio sound map. And this is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Riesbendel. I'm joined with my co-hosts and producers, Jennifer Waits and Eric Klein. And also joining us this week is Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the Pirate Act, which is a piece of legislation that was signed into law in January of 2020. um, And its last provisions regarding increased fines for unlicensed radio operation are going into effect on April 26th. And we've been talking about what effect, if any, uh, this law is having on... uh, Pirate broadcasters, unlicensed radio broadcasters, and, and David uh, actively monitors uh, Brooklyn, New York, where, where he resides, and, and is definitely an authority on that. Um, you know, one last question regarding unlicensed broadcasters. As, as we mentioned, you know, they're often serving uh, very underserved communities, uh, uh, whether maybe a religious community such as the Orthodox uh uh, Jewish community or uh, immigrant communities there in Brooklyn. And, of course, for the last year since this act was signed, you know, we've all been experiencing uh, the effects of the COVID pandemic. And, I'm, and, and I, I can only imagine that this had uh, really uh, deleterious effects on many of the communities being served by unlicensed radio stations. Is this something which, which you've heard on air? Is this something you've observed as well? Do you, do you hear them talk or, or does it seem as though it's affected stations or forced, even forced them off the air? No, actually, uh, contrary to that, they didn't get first off the air. What I noticed first was that some stations extended their hours, and if they were not daytime broadcasters, they became daytime broadcasters. They changed their programming. I'd say prior to that, it was it's pretty normal for the stations in the West Indian community to, especially when they come on the air at 6 or 7, to play feeds of news from home, you know, from their uh, countries of origin. So you'll hear news service from Jamaica, from Trinidad. But what I didn't hear that much of was a lot of local content. Um, there are some, some immigration attorneys and, and some some political stuff, but that changed dramatically with COVID. And you started to hear uh, representatives um from the state legislature, the the, the uh, city councilmen come on some of these stations, perhaps not knowing that it was a pirate station, thinking maybe it was a streaming station. Uh, shout outs to essential workers, um, even shout outs to the undocumented in the community, programs where there would be call-ins of people talking about people who died. And even stations, There, there's a subset of stations that are mostly automated. Uh, you don't hear a live DJ, and they would suddenly be dropping in COVID um, health tips. Uh, so it it really changed dramatically. And I, I started recording almost like 24 hours a day at that point. And um, on the new release of the map, I have several samples uh, of that COVID calypsos, DJs freestyling, talking about COVID. Really a, a big change of how the way I put it is that they drew even closer to their audiences than before. And you have some uh, samples of that you can share with us. I do. Um, here's the one that I find one of the most affecting. Uh, I'll play about a minute of it unless you want me to play a little more. Uh, this is, this is a, a station called Wild FM, which uh, seems to be 
targeting to the um, Grenadian community, people from Grenada, but also they serve, you know, the, the other parts of the community as well. And so one night I, t- I was tuning by and I heard this COVID calypso. I'm telling you, this thing is so dread. Thousands of people already dead. So please stay at home and don't go nowhere. And if you're spiritual, I tell you to pray. Because if you start coughing, I'm telling you, the undertaker waiting with his coughing too. So I tell you, please, my people, be wise. Wash your hand, wear your mask, and please sanitize. I'm begging you, please, be careful out there. And hopefully one day this virus will disappear. flying, they all on the ground. Countries lock the borders, everything locked down. Say at home, the authorities warning you. So I say them bandits might have stay home too. But I understand a bank robber on the run. The man hold up a bank without any gun. He told the bank workers, this ain't no bluff. You better hand over the cash, otherwise I cough. I'm begging you, please, my people, be wise. Wash your hands, wear your mask, and please sanitize. I'm begging you, please, be careful out there. And hopefully one day this virus will disappear. So that's a short sample of wow. a COVID Calypso. Um, Played on pirate play. radio in, in Brooklyn. Right. 106.3 Wild FM. Here's, here's another one in the street radio on 91.9. Ripper Jackson, think caught too much dying. Broken artist enough. Ripper Jackson. Them some 500 people died yesterday. Off of this coronavirus thing, you know? That was pretty common. Uh, I'll play just one more if we have time. Right, and that one which, was recorded. David Gorn, what 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 month of the pandemic was that one? From? Uh, that was recorded uh, April 2020. Okay, yeah, so, and I heard when... him. That, that was when things were getting bad for the first time in in the neighborhood. Right, 
and and, and this 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 next one, let's see. What if I could follow the the heartbeat in Brooklyn? Uh, this one was recorded. Uh, this is Crossroads Family Radio, one hundred five point five. Uh, another really interesting station. Lots of DJs, uh, live DJs. Uh, so this was um, an intro to a Calypso that features clips from Donald Trump, though I, I won't get as far as playing that. But just the intro is really affecting. 105.5 FM, the heartbeat of Brooklyn. Reaching out again to my local diasporans, 105.5 FM. Thank you so much for the Saturday evening. When it's not the best of times, not just for you, not just for me, the entire universe. And so we understand the magnitude of what we're faced, of course. New York has been hit very heavy in recent days, and it's understandable it's the epicenter of many things. So when viruses hit, it becomes the epicenter also. Um, the most recorded cases so far passing in China and Italy. So we ought to understand the seriousness of the situation that we deal with and deal accordingly. And at the same time, be able to enjoy the things that we want to within the limitations and confines that we currently have to deal with. I want to play a song out of Garaku by Dan Juma. It's called Madam Corona. I'm going to let it rip. Not going to make any comments as Bernie Sanders would say. I would say nothing. And just let the, <laughs> just let the song play. So ladies and gentlemen, it's one of five FM Saturday evening. It's good when you could skip on uh, the PSAs and go and eat a piece of fried chicken. It's, it's not a bad thing. Anyway, let's begin this segment with music out of Karaku for all of you. We did one of the great jobs, you say, how's President Trump doing? They go, oh, not good, not good. We have lost nobody to coronavirus in the United States. Nobody. Oh, Lord, nobody. And this is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're 15 people in this massive country. Somewhere in China. You say, how's President Trump doing? They go, oh, not good, not good. We have lost nobody to coronavirus in the United States. Nobody. And this is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're 15 people in this massive country. Bang, Zoom. So this was... This was right just as the lockdown was happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in March. So what we hear here is, of course, as you mentioned at the top of the show, Eric, that, that we have these unlicensed stations operating in places like 
like Brooklyn that are are in touch with their communities that are function like community radio stations in many ways. Uh, they simply lack a license in order to do so with the with the authorization of the Federal Communications Commission uh, and and the federal government. Um, you know, I'm gonna. Take a, take us a turn here uh, to some other news uh, that regards the FCC, and that you know, I mean, I certainly think is very related, uh, in part because it, the existence of of unlicensed radio, I mean, has been there really since the beginning of radio existing. Uh, it's a hundred year old story, but certainly in the United States. We saw an uptick in, in a lot of unlicensed radio action uh, beginning in the 1990s as the FM ban in particular became fuller, as there were fewer opportunities for people to broadcast, and also because the opportunity to broadcast inexpensively uh, with smaller transmitters uh, had been actually closed down by the FCC in, in 1978. Um, you know, and much of the and, and people saw in their local communities in, on their local airwaves they heard a change as there was consolidation in the industry, as uh, they lost local voices, as programming became more regional, more nationalized, um, you know, and folks really began to feel as though uh, radio as a whole was not serving local communities very well. And, and stations went on the air, uh, many of them uh, put on the air by, by activists, uh, sort of practicing uh, a type of civil disobedience, and the 1990s, the micropower radio movement, and also stations of the sort which we've been talking about for the you know for the program up to now, uh, which which may or may not be political in that in that sort of civil disobedience sort of way, but nevertheless in response to the fact that the ability to get on the air in a city like New York City, especially, um, is very very difficult both financially. Uh, new licenses are tend not to be available, so you have to buy existing licenses for millions of dollars. Um, you know, in many ways, it is. Sort Sort of an outcome of of the economy of broadcasting, which which has we've gotten to this point because of of the rules that govern uh, how many stations a given entity can own and operate, uh, and in what way and in what area, and and has allowed uh, much of the the radio spectrum uh, to be monopolized by very few players, an oligopoly, if you will, that uh, don't broadcast a, a wide diversity of programming. And that's a question that, that, that has been, as we've talked with Professor Chris Terry now for years, that the FCC has been uh, in, a, in a back and forth volley uh, with the uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, over changes it's made to ownership rules, which the Third Circuit Court, uh, time and again, uh, told the FCC, essentially, you haven't done your homework. Uh, and especially you haven't done your homework around how these changes, largely loosening ownership restrictions, affect uh, women and minority ownership. The, the Supreme Court yeah, recently when you say owner, when you say ownership restrictions, Paul, we're letting listeners know that yeah. what you mean is that um, larger and larger corporations are allowed under the existing rules to buy up stations that previously, were off limits to them, so that there could have been more ownership. Yeah, there diversity. was just simply a limit on how many they could own, or how many they could own in a market, or what mix of stations—radio and television, etc.—they could own. And, and through a quirk of our system, the FCC is the one that runs that that runs yeah. those rules. And that's a gloss, but I, I want to take us up to now because on April first, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in in the case uh, that has been in the Third Circuit now for well over a decade, uh, Prometheus versus FCC. 
and and came down with, with, with what at least surprised me as as a unanimous decision. Um, Chris, what did the FCC decide? I'm sorry. Uh, Chris, what did the Supreme Court decide in this case? So the opinion is very narrow, um, almost unbelievably narrow. And that accounts for the uh, unanimous decision um, is that it is not a a wide case. Um, The opinion, which is written by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, is fairly short. Um, There's a concurring opinion by Justice Thomas. Uh, the opinion by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, though, basically says that in 2017, not any of the times before this uh, that the FCC has lost in court, but um, in 2017 decision, the FCC was not incorrect in how it acted. That's like the halfway point, basically, right? Between well, it's uh, there's some question about that. Uh, so the challenge that was brought was to, in part, close down the Third Circuit's ability to continue to oversee this case. There's some debate about whether or not that's actually occurred here because there are still standing remands from before 2017 that the FCC hasn't answered yet. A remand that, meaning something the court has told the FCC to go resolve or take right. care of. Go, go show your go do your homework over right. again. And sort of Christopher, you've you've taught us over the five years that we've been talking about this case that the Third Circuit Court has been consistently demanding the FCC yep. to um, do a better job of of um, justifying why why the rules should be lifted and, and further consolidation should be allowed. So nominally, the FCC won the case, um, but there are a lot of caveats to that. Uh, all the court says is that in 2017, not the 2016 decision, which was part of the 2017 decision, nor the decision that the FCC would have to complete this year, nor the decision that the FCC has to complete starting next year, review of the rules. under Which the, they're required to do to on do, a biennial basis, right? right. Uh, quadrennial basis. Quadrennial basis, I'm sorry. Um that there's no guidance on any of those things. The decision is only about the 2017 order. It only relates to a handful of rules, including the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule. Um, and the FCC has the ability to implement the rule changes that it approved in 2017 if it so desires to do so. Of course, the difference is, is that the commission looks a lot different now than it did when those rule changes were implemented in 2017. So it's a nominal victory for the commission. But what's notable about the decision is what it lacks. Uh, both the industry and the, uh, so the NAB-led petitioners. National Association but, of Broadcasters, yeah. yeah. And the citizen petitioners both asked the court for some clarity on uh, what Section 202H, the governing statute, actually is supposed to mean and how the FCC is supposed to interpret it. This was a significant part of the oral argument uh, when the case went to the Supreme Court. There's literally nothing in the decision about that. Uh, there's some stuff in Justice uh, Thomas's concurring opinion about it, but it's just a concurring opinion. It's not the decision in the case. Um so functionally, the FCC kind of kind of got a pat on the back from Justice Kavanaugh, but in reality, the metric hasn't changed. 
Uh, the FCC is free to implement the rule changes it proposed in 2017 if it wants to. And what were those uh, rule changes? Can you remind us there? Sure. Uh, it would increase the uh, limit on uh, national audience that could be owned by television owner. Uh, it does away with a rule dealing with uh, joint service agreements where people who own stations license people to use the stations uh, in on their behalf. And the main one it gets rid of is the uh, rule that's been on the books since 1975, preventing a single owner from owning a newspaper, radio, and television station in a single market. Um, this rule is from 1975. The FCC has been trying to get rid of it for a long time, and they now finally have the permission to get rid of it. There are only six existing combos, uh, all of which were grandfathered from before 1975 that still exist in the United States and what that's the case. So the rule is basically meaningless at this point anyway. Uh, but it, the, the status quo hasn't changed. The FCC has not actually altered any ownership rules since the Telecommunications Act. There's only one change that's been implemented so far, and that's a change to the national television ownership rule, which was increased from 35 to 39% after Fox Television um, bought the New World Communication stations as owned and operated stations. Uh, and Congress actually made that change while the first Prometheus case was pending. Uh, what happens next? Um, well, the FCC has an open but completely unacted on uh, quadrennial review process uh, that was launched in 2018. That has to be completed this year. And they'll have to launch an additional uh, quadrennial review process uh, in calendar 2022. Uh, what remains to be seen is who our new FCC commissioner will be. That's an important part of this uh, yeah, the, process. The, the chairperson of the, uh, of the FCC. Yeah. Uh, well, we have an interim chair now. Um, but who the will expectation, be the permanent? Yeah. Who is expected to have her term renewed. That is Jessica Rosenworcel. Uh, expected that she'll have her term renewed and she'll be the chair for a full term. Uh, but also that we would have a third Democratic commissioner on there. There's been a few names bantered about, but nothing of any substance, and the Biden administration does not appear to consider this a really important thing. Uh, so we're probably at stalemate into another uh, another round here. <laughs> the the, the um, vision I have in my head, the, the parallel or, or the metaphor I have is uh is is this college student in their uh in their sixth year uh who has once again slept through statistics 101 and yet is uh begging and pleading to to, to walk in graduation this year yeah so that's i mean you bring up the statistics thing that was certainly a part of the third circuit's uh overturning of the fcc's decision in 2017 the supreme court says gives the FCC a little bit more leeway moving forward, saying that a decision doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be supported by evidence. What they said is that although the FCC had evidence before it made its decision in 2017, the proceeding it engaged in in 2017 didn't generate substantial new evidence. There's a reason for that. People were waiting for a court decision. And, and, and this is evidence about uh, effectively minority yeah. and, and, and ownership by women, ownership right. of actual broadcast stations. Right. So the FCC had collected a bunch of data on that prior to 2017, but did not do so after 2017 um, because most of that evidence was still supposed to be in the record. So this decision is about this wide. I mean, it's very narrow. 
um, and really doesn't change the status quo. Uh, the broadcasters were, uh, especially NEB people, were actually sort of crowing victory at first, but uh, I've talked to several of them since, and they're a little less uh, excited about it as it moves forward because it really hasn't changed the status quo. Because they don't know if they're going to go back in front of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals to have to answer to the remands, the FCC, that is, or whether this could potentially end up in a different circuit. Uh, traditionally, the D.C. Circuit handles FCC appeals. Well, it's it's more than that. Um, all the court gave the FCC permission to do was to move forward on its 2017 decision if it wanted to. It said that that decision wasn't arbitrary and capricious, that the Third Circuit had been wrong about that, but didn't give the FCC any guidance on what it would need to do in the future or how to operate, and didn't require the FCC to implement those rules. So for the FCC to move forward on those rules, at least in theory, they would have to take another vote to actually start to put those rules into place, and they would have to approve mergers under those new rules. And you have a 2-2 deadlocked FCC right now, so it's not going anywhere. Uh, and frankly, we're, we're although we've moved the timeline forward a little bit and things are just a bit different than the last time we talked, the status quo remains. Uh, women and minorities still represent a dramatically underserved uh, population in the United States in terms of ownership and content. And the FCC is still has to continually review its media ownership rules. What I expect will happen is that the FCC will punt on this until later this year and that at some point later this year what they'll do is they'll decide that there isn't enough time to finish the 2018 review they'll roll it into the 20, the review that they have to launch next year and then they won't worry about it for a few more years which will continue the process and there's plenty of precedent for that that's exactly what they did in 2010 when they didn't want to complete that review so the expectation is we could be three to four years out from an actual decision uh, by the FCC. So yeah, and, status quo. And as I'm obligated to say, each time we talk about this issue, one of the, the main, it would seem, the main reason why we're, we're here in this holding pattern where m the media ownership rules are being uh, uh, permanently litigated in, in the courts is because it's been now, you know, so the, the court case we're talking about is about over 15 years old. 17. Yeah, and... The last time the lawmakers of the United States acted on media ownership rules and changed the policy was over 25, 25 years ago. Years ago. Somewhere well, between our, 25 our, and 30 years ago. And so that's, arguably, that's why we keep talking about it like this. Arguably, the rules were set 25 years ago, but they did make one small change by expanding the television ownership cap in 2003. So that's only been 18 years since they've been changed <laughs> a mere a mere it, it, it well now now it certainly it can drive and serve in the military so uh <laughs> i think that is uh that is where we stand uh with media ownership uh which is more of the same which is kind of where we come to every time we talk with you uh professor christopher terry however what is important is that there, there continue to be machinations um, because that is where the devil is in the details. It's still and very important, even if it's an annoying story to try to cover. Exactly, because, I mean, there is potential for change, nevertheless. Um, and there is a potential for an FCC that could take up the cause of a more diverse uh, broadcast system and has, has the tools at hand and the ability to do so. And the way this decision is written... 
it gives the FCC a little bit more deference on the decision it makes. And one of the things that the broadcasting folks are a little less excited about in sort of after they've slept on it with this decision is that a Democratic-led FCC could use this decision to say, well, the evidence suggests that we need to constrict some of these limits. And uh, they would have a little bit more leeway to do that now than they've had in the past. So, uh, you know, it, it could if cut- the Biden administration cared about the FCC, something could happen. Yes. Of course, uh, the FCC is a little more concerned with broadband deployment and net neutrality right now than media ownership. But And we will, we will, we will come back and talk with you more about that uh, in subsequent episodes. Uh, it is a double-edged sword there. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Christopher Terry, Professor of Media Law at the University of Minnesota. Thanks, guys. See you soon. Wonderful. The big, the big net neutrality news, of course, is that the FCC has told the uh, the the uh, Mozilla court that uh, it doesn't need to answer the remand from the Mozilla decision because it's going to have a different net neutrality policy before the end of the year. So um, they haven't said what that policy will be, mm-hmm. but they have said there will be one coming. So. Um, something to keep an eye in mind as it develops here. Absolutely. I'm going to drop off. Good to see you guys, David. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, and if you need something else, uh, talk to you soon. Fantastic. Cheers. Thank you, Chris. Bye, Chris. Bye. Uh, yeah, David, if you have time for us, I mean, we have questions we did not get to, but yeah, you know. sure. I just want to start. I didn't take my turn to acknowledge the, the power of your, the tape you just played for us. Um, it was really, really remarkable. Um, Frankly, I was blown away just by just by hearing those voices acknowledge the the historical moment, the the weight of what we've all been through, especially especially their community living in New York City. I mean, I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm gonna guess that um, that it was a lot rougher in 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 the Brooklyn immigrant communities. Uh, the the people who got sick, the people who didn't who didn't live through this pandemic, and just to hear that, um, uh, well, thank you for one, thank you for preserving that sound. It's kind of incredible to think about how um, I wouldn't hear that sound, I wouldn't have had these feelings uh, if if you hadn't done the work to to press record on your tape recorder. I mean, maybe you could just tell us a little, David, about um, where you were at when you heard those sounds. I mean, you also live in brooklyn and you just lived through the pandemic and you were listening to pie radio yeah it was it was really intense i mean i i lived within that community or uh you know where i live it's sort of like 12 different communities all mixed together and i'm hearing some sirens now but during that time it was like sirens were nonstop, mm-hmm. and so to hear that, you know, it was a way to connect with the other people around me, but also that they were in demographic groups that that were suffering more because they're they're living closer together, the the communities are poorer. And I remember during that time seeing a tweet from the former commissioner Michael O'Reilly who's like pirates are bad and they're they're keeping crucial COVID information from their listeners and I was like I'm not hearing anything like this on a commercial station, on a on a legal station. So yeah, 
and I, and I don't know if I had COVID. I didn't test positive, but I was sick during that time, and I was mm. sleeping away from the rest of the family, so I wouldn't bother them with my coughing. But I was near my studio, and though I had been recording often, I started recording like all the time and, and running a couple different tape decks going on and then spent the following months g going through it. So on the map, a lot of the level one sounds, I, I put a lot of the COVID material, but there's also uh, the way the map is organized. Each station has an archive of up to 10 sounds. So on on the top level, I put a lot of the COVID, and, but then you can search and, and find others as well. And a, there are a lot of stations have preachers and they were, Here's the siren now. Uh, they were speaking to to their flocks during during this time. So, and still, still, there's a lot of content that's that's related to that as well. Yeah, and you would also get you would you would get nurses coming on in the community and and giving out tips. You would hear um, some of the Haitian stations would run. Uh, they would run English language news from like NBC and then on top of it, they would translate it into Creole. So there was a real, there was a real reaching out to their audience and a real, you know, the audience responding. I've, I've heard about this challenge in California during the wildfires that sometimes critical emergency information isn't being translated as quickly as it should be. So community radio often fills that gap by, translating press conferences for their listeners. So it's really interesting to hear about how pirate stations were doing that, you know, because I would yeah. imagine you don't have, yeah, I mean, that, that's the whole reason for the existence of these stations is that they don't have stations in their language readily available. Right. And, or they come up and they come up from a culture in which radio played an important part, like in Haiti, I've learned about uh, what they would call the transistor revolution during the Duvalier dictatorship. Um, I talked with the uh, uh, head of the CUNY uh, Department of Haitian Studies, and he said there would be, uh, as he put it, the, the peasant in his fields would sooner uh, uh, forgo buying tobacco to save money to buy batteries for their radio. Um, because it was really important to them to hear independent news from off the island. And so, you know, and the the wave of immigration started in the, in the 60s, I believe. And so those people came here with, you know, knowing the importance of radio and, and, and keeping a radio close by. And it would also establish the operators of the stations as, as a person of influence in, in the community. So it's, it's really, you know, when, even when I, I'll allude again to my interview with uh, Rosemary Harrell of the FCC, they're like, well, why don't they just stream? And other people have said that too. And it's just because the, the connection to radio is so strong. It's thought to be this, way of getting information. I, I interviewed um, a station on the Brooklyn-Queens border. They talked to me under a pseudonym, called them Radio Activista, and they boasted of, like, we stream and we get 50,000 listeners a day all around the world. And so I said, so so why do you take the risk to 
um, to run a pirate radio station. They said, well, for the elderly in the community, um, for the poor, uh, I also talked to a pastor at a church uh, who who spoke to me off the record, and I posed the same question. He said, for the homeless, for the shut-ins, for the hospitalized, and and even if you could say, well, you know, they are receiving information another way. And a lot of the stations, they most of them stream. They're on Facebook Live. But there's this real strong connection to, like, radio is what we need to keep current with the community. It's in a, I, I say the scene is in a mature phase, but but the numbers have stay, have stayed strong. But you know, it may it may change as 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 the audience gets older and, and the younger audience is more comfortable with, with other devices. I just have Every- to acknowledge that, I mean, for me, for people like me, streaming, using the internet is background. It's part of my lifestyle. It doesn't cost me any money. It, it would feel to me, but it does. It is part of my privilege that the internet is just um, mine to engage with. And to think of people living through, a once in a century pandemic when the rent is, you know, prob- you know, some people still have to pay the rent. Some people still have to find money for food. Um, then to be called upon to, to pay for the information that might be keeping you safe is pretty, right. pretty intense. I wonder, David, and, did you ever hear, I'm sorry, Jennifer. Oh, well, I mean, along those lines, I think every time I talk to you, David, or hear from you, David, I'm reminded that pirate radio is different than what a lot of people think it is. And, and you really highlighted that by talking about how, as you're talking today about these very vulnerable populations who are listening and elderly, and I, you know, even think about people of the older generation that I know who are unlikely to listen to a streaming radio station. So I think that's really important, um, it's really important in opening our understanding of who pirate radio listeners are, that they could be elderly people, homeless people, people who are really disenfranchised. And that that puts a whole different spin on what pirate radio is. Right. It's in, in, in New York City, in Boston, in Miami, um, it's really, it's, it's a grassroots community radio scene for people who have not been able to get on the air legally, who, you know, the change that happened from pirate radio in the 80s and 90s in New York City, which used to be on the weekends, late at night, you know, sort of mostly spoof, prankster, underground. In the 90s, it changed, and I was really, I listened through the change. It was like, I can't believe the station is on at, you know, 4 p.m., or they're on every day. Unbelievable, and it's really, it's because they were they were filling it a need and and that situation has changed and I, I think it's the energy of all those stations which has also kept it on the air whether they cooperate or not they are acting in concert and that has sort of warded off the FCC to a degree another question Paul hold on I just I just wanted to ask David if like we just lived through this the pandemic year that we lived through and one of the things that is easy to forget is how um, difficult it was to track the changing nature of what we knew we needed to know to keep ourselves safe. And I'm wondering if you ever encountered that sort of, um, you know, the day that masks were being recommended on, on the pirate stations you were listening to, or the day that we learned that, uh, that you could be asymptomatic and still spread 
the virus to your to your family members or you know was that kind of information um being uh, disseminated on these pirate radio stations it it was um both by like healthcare workers in the community but also stations would run um Cuomo's press conferences they would <laughs> you know they would get that information out there like i said earlier there's one connected DJ, um, Vibesman Redman, I believe is his name, on 99.9. You can look on the map. And for hours, he had representatives from government on the station talking. And this was just as the lockdown was happening. So there were Giovanni Williams, who's the public advocate, um, Yvette Clark, who's the, the congresswoman. So, yeah, and... And like you said earlier, you know, how did I feel? It's like it was a really strange time in New York City uh, with the lockdown happening. The the whole tenor of life changed in an instant. So it really was a case of this radio uh, becoming a community. Well, I just want to remind listeners who might not be aware that when you say lockdown, I want to also – I don't know the numbers, but the numbers are staggering. Like it goes lockdown – simultaneously with um with with people dying in massive numbers and that was back when new york city was the was the worst place in the world for for coronavirus as far as the the density of 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 the disease and the the victims and so it's just um it's not you know we're we're in this political climate now where lockdown is a little bit more of a of a of a bomb that can be thrown at 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 democratic politicians and in 2021 it has a much different feeling than than what it must have felt like to be in new york city in in april of 2020 when the lockdowns were verifiably saving live countless lives countless lives so i just wanted to say that yeah well i'm sorry i was interrupting no that's good no i'm ready for another question (laughs) well you know i mean after talking about the the FCC's Sisyphusian uh, story with regard to ownership rules. So too does this struggle with unlicensed broadcasters seem Sisyphusian, and it's not nationwide, right? It, it effectively, you know, there are these five hotspots. You know, I live in Portland, Oregon, and there's no sign of unlicensed radio activity. That you can that you that you can see on any consistent right. basis. I, I hate to interrupt, but I Paul, I just re-listened to our, an episode from five years ago where um, where I where I cele- where I was uh, reporting on the scene as a low power FM radio station in Portland, Oregon was throwing up its antenna for the first time, and I discovered from interviewing the people who were working at that low power FM, a licensed radio station, that numerous. Uh, members of that radio community got their start in Portland with a pirate station. Yeah, and right. So there was the Portland the- Radio Authority, which which broadcast in that micro power uh, civil disobedience mode. Yeah. Uh, I guess around in the two thousands, and they and they were they were doing what they thought was college radio, free form music appreciation, right. exciting DJ sets. That was their that was what was missing from from the radio experience in Portland. A decade ago, but if you go but from that's different from metro to metro around around the country, you may hear or hear of one or two stations, 
in a in a Cleveland or even a Chicago. It's just you know places like Brooklyn and Boston and South Florida where you have this this critical mass, you know, and you know, David, it seems like there's there, there's like a tipping point or something. And certainly, obviously, it has to do with the diasporas that have settled in these communities. You've pointed out uh, sort of the uh, the importance of radio to the Haitian diaspora, which which has a heavy concentration in many of these communities, or or West Indian diaspora in general. It has um, the this sort of concentration. But it, it does seem to me, though, that it that there is a tipping point, right? Is that do you, do you observe that? I guess there's always been unlicensed radio of of a certain density in New York, perhaps simply because, I mean, it is the largest you know metropolis in in the United States. So maybe that's just something we should expect. But I mean, do you do you also observe that maybe there is this tipping point that once you've normalized it if you will or it becomes normalized amongst uh, a certain percentage of of the community there's no turning back at least at the moment yeah i think so and i think also that the tipping point was um was in the 90s you know in the the telecommunications act of 1996 and and that the pastor i spoke with before about the church station um he used to buy time on on a on an AM station, uh, and he was you know spending five thousand dollars an hour, and so I think in his community he became aware of of other other um, programmers, and that's the route he went, and he's he's been on there since twenty ten. On, on his his church station right and that's something which 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 often gets left out because in many uh, communities and in smaller cities in particular a lot of uh, language and linguistic minorities are are served by the least least time arrangements on am stations uh, often sometimes because they are more independently owned rather than owned you know they're actually kind of largely deemed unprofitable or not desirable by a large company like an iHeart and so may still be operated by a, a smaller group that, that principally, yeah, they don't really operate this, the station. Uh, they, they lease the time to any number of different organizations. Um, and, and, and again, I think probably the nature of the dial in New York City, I would suspect is probably not, not dissimilar in, in Boston, is even that lease time is probably very expensive <laughs> if, if it's even it, available. It, it, it is, and and you, and you will still hear stations from these communities on lease time stations and subcarrier authority uh, stations as well. Actually, it's subsidiary. Is it the Subsidiary Communications Act, which you yeah. can have, you can lease a signal? There are still five Haitian stations that hmm. broadcast legally uh, through subcarrier. Also, something I hear is that there is actually somewhat of a two-way street. There. Are, in Westchester County, there's WVIP, which uh, brokers almost all of its time, and now they have HD subchannels uh, for different immigrant groups. They, um, you'll hear pirate station programming on that station, and sometimes you'll hear a subcarrier station on a pirate station. Hmm. You'll hear you, all kinds of streams cycling through. Kind of bri- ri- yeah, right, right. Wherever they, whatever route it can take, it's almost it's I almost know. like water, right? Could you explain subcarrier? This is something that's always fascinated me. Um, the station where I DJ used to have a subcarrier that was in a different language. And 
I never quite understood how that worked and who could listen. Yeah, um, not sure if I can explain the technical uh, that much, but to, here to our local audience, I, I'm holding up a uh, a very cheap uh, radio I found online. Uh, so basically, there are there are two subcarriers that can be re- that can be leased, an upper and a lower, and um, let's see if I can. They're effectively little hanger-on frequencies. So you you can have a, a station at ninety two point one FM, and it has an upper or lower subcarrier that that can also carry um, audio information effectively. That's right. Right. And That's so we're right. saying and that there that that the same communities that were running pirate radio stations, unlicensed radio, would would they would they would get on these frequencies and be licensed and still do. Uh, and right. And, are they and paying still... for that time? I guess, or are they? Yeah, they're they're community? they're paying they're paying to lease the. I don't know what the fee is off the top of my, my head. But I also know that a lot of in where I live, some of those subcarrier stations, I talked to the owner of one, Radio Panu, which is about a mile from me on Nostrand Avenue, which is the heart of what now is officially called Little Haiti. And it seems that people who used to be on the staff of these stations went and got pirate radio tra- transmitters and beat the ad rates of the of the subcarrier stations so it's, it's sort so of fascinating this whole other sort system it's sort of seeded out that way i've heard when i saw i got a subcarrier radio probably in the 90s and there were you know stations for the mexican community and still are for the haitian community there was a ksl uh salt lake cities uh, am station for the mormon community in the area mm. Um, there's a, still a Greek subcarrier station. There's a, a Catholic station uh, which broadcasts a subcarrier in um, Italian and Spanish. And there's also radio reading services for the blind, which that's a very in other parts one, of the yeah. it's that's the most common one. I, I took a Greyhound trip for a documentary I was making uh, about three years ago, and I took the subcarrier radio, and I only had a couple chances to listen i was in oklahoma city and i tuned through and there were there was a chinese station mm-hmm. so that you'll, you'll you'll still hear that in in some cases. and 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 usually i mean well not usually you do need a special radio specifically tuned and very often these radios are not um flexible meaning often it is associated with a single frequency or a single station in fact that's how they used to distribute muzak elevator music Right. Uh, was a distributed fixed tuned through, station. Yeah, through SCA, yeah. and and you you just bought you had to buy that Muzak radio specifically from the Muzak company, of course, and then pay a subscription fee for that. Right, and I think actually, it's it's not um, I don't know if it's illegal, but it's not quite kosher to be listening to a subcarrier station unless you are providing a fee to that station for the huh. receiver. I, I don't know if that's changed, a, but that used a, to be the case. What a Whoa. unique radio culture that we... But you can use one of those. Um, I mean, certainly you, uh, apparently, uh, David, you own uh, uh, an agile subcarrier receiver, and you can use a software-defined receiver, of course, nowadays, which is like a little you, USB you can. radio you that can. you plug into your computer that costs about 25 bucks. Yeah, we did, a whole, we did a whole episode about software-defined radio. That we'll have to put yeah. in the show because, notes because you can you yeah you can use that technology to get a recording of the entire spectrum of radio. You can use the software defined radio technology to 
to record every single radio station simultaneously that your radio can hear. Um, right. Very like I'm, a I'm bionic curious. radio nerd. Or, or over a certain that... bandwidth, depending on the radio. Of course, you need a big hard drive to be able to capture <laughs> yeah. all but that but data. We learned, I'm sorry, Jennifer. We learned from that episode that Jennifer was referencing that the first time it, the, that somebody had a um, – it was a VHS tape that they could record – VHS tape was like the best existing physical media of the day. And there's a – it was 1984, I think. There was a f- full-spectrum recording of of uh, of AM radio in, on the East Coast in 1984. Right, recorded in, in Boston. Tape that they, yeah, uh, well, it's like the, sort of the, the DXer community. Yeah. I think that was Mark Connolly was one of those guys. I actually – when SDRs came in, he was able to convert his VHS recording and play them back. And I think you were probably was Thomas Witherspoon part of that yes. episode. That's our yes. guess. Yes, yeah. that was. The yeah, he. Was I was there when he presented that at the Radio Preservation Task Force right. conference, yes. and you could hear the jaws collectively <laughs> dropping <laughs> all, all over the room. Um, so yes, I and that's something that I've been looking to because I'm recording stations singly for hours at a time. Right. I have done a lot of SDR recording on shortwave recording and the AM and the medium wave or AM radio band. But FM is so big that like if I would record the length of the, of the AM or medium wave band overnight, you know, it might be like 30 gigabytes by by the overnight recording, but to record the wide FM spectrum is, is more challenging. And I'm, I'm looking into doing that at least what I would like to do is to go to all over New York City to the different pirate radio zones of activity and make representative recordings from from each area. We probably would fill up a couple terabytes of a hard drive. Yeah, you're, in, you're th- in 4K video, <laughs> like you know. But the, yeah. people do it. People people fill up hard drives with all sorts of nonsense. It's so. incredible that you're doing it. And back, I have to ask one more question about the subcarrier. So you can actually buy a a subcarrier radio. Yes, you can. If I was going to, this is another, I, I take some of my inspiration for, for, for this project from, um, from the DXing, the shortwave listening, the radio geek community. So years ago, there was this guy, Bruce Elving, who was a FM radio DXer. He was obsessed with FM radio. He, he lived in, lived in Wisconsin and he had this FM radio guide he would put out every year that showed you all the FM radio stations around the country. At the same time, he was modifying GE super radios with um, SCA so, and sort of selling those to that community. Uh, and I, I found this one on, I don't want to advertise them, Amazon.com. <laughs> That's are kind of evil. But uh, I like this one, the AVI radio, because it actually has a digital readout, so it's a little easier to figure out who's on. Depends where you are now. It's, it's, it seems to have really dropped off around the country. I think there's about 14 stations in New York City that still use it. Well, and I, I mean, I use that metaphor like water, because it, it, right, it's, is that water will go where it can. And it sounds as though uh, you know, folks who have a reason to and a community to broadcast to will go where they can. And, and, and as I think what you're sort of demonstrating there, David, is that, you know, yes, uh, having an unlicensed uh, FM 
transmitter is one of these methods, but if they can do it through means that are that are ostensibly more legitimate in the eyes of the law, they will do that as well. And and I think that that's been long the struggle here that we right. have. Why we talk about this is because it, it is that you know the more restrictions there are, be they artificial or shall we say economic but but really created right because no economic system just ex- comes out of a va- vacuum there are rules there are regulations there's a body of law that 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 bring it into existence and and when uh, you cut off the the legal authorized avenues um people are more inclined to 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 use avenues that are right. extra legal if if john anderson was available to join us today we would have thrown him a question much like um the question that he answered uh, back on episode six or whichever – episode three where John Anderson was a guest on Radio Survivor for the first time. And we were talking about how uh, – that there could have been a different approach to pirate radio, to unlicensed radio. And, and John Anderson introduced into my mind something I'll never forget, the, the concept of harm reduction as opposed to um, – you know, incarceration yeah. would be the yeah prohibition. So that you know, you have these unlicensed radio operators who um, who are interfering with existing licensed radio. Perhaps there could be a way to um, get them to follow a certain set of rules that would that would resemble what licensed radio follows and reduce the amount of you know the bad things that are happening with this with this particular radio station could be um, mitigated without you know throwing the book at them and. This is right. this could always have been possible. That you know, we're radio survivor. We've talked about it many times. There's like, there are already licensed, not licensed, but there are already uh, ways in which people can get radio stations up and running uh, within the rules. But those radios tend to be um, very, very, very small. But you can imagine a world in which maybe where these communities exist and the density. And the need is so great, has been demonstrated to be um, so large that, that they could be allowed to be on the air in a, in a legal way. Right. Decriminalized right. community radio. Right. Well, that's sort of what we've had because it's, the enforcement became a paper tiger. And, right. you know, also when, when I have spoken to an operator of a station, they're always pumping me for information. How can I do this legally? Is there anything I can do? The pastor of the station went to his city council people and said, "You know, I'm serving my community. Uh, what, you know, can you do anything?" And they're like, "No, we can't do anything." And and I've talking, I've spoken with another a city council person um, who was going on the pirate the Haitian pirate radio stations and then was told that not to do that. And mm. so now she's very, she's very careful about trying not to be on those stations. Well, so. and then flipping over that, you know, we can't do anything. So with having reached this tipping point in, in a number of communities in this, in the country uh, where the passage of a new law intended to fight unlicensed radio seems to have little to no discernible effect um, I mean, is this is this is this a problem the FCC can fix, David? <laughs> Does it seem likely that this is a problem that that can actually be addressed, or is it really more of a of a that that the commission and and the Congress can fix the political problem of looking like they're trying to fix it? That's exactly it. I I think that's 
that's what they're trying to do. They're trying, you know, they're getting pressure from the NAB or from the New York State Broadcasters Association to do something. And I think the FCC historically has been so ineffective that in 2016, the New York State Broadcasters Association hired somebody to go around and to log the different pirate radio stations. And they wrote a 90-page report and they did direction finding on these stations. In fact, there was one antenna in uh, in West Orange, New Jersey, that was right behind a police station. You know? <laughs> That's great. So, and and there's a that station I referred to earlier, Radio Activista. Uh, that's not their real name on their on their Facebook page. They're posing with members of the police force because they were a highly, you know, grassroots uh, polit- politically active, active station. They would get listeners out to community meetings, and and that's another thing that I've heard. You know, it, why a lot of station raids don't really happen is because you have to get the the police on board. Uh, for some of these, and I think to the extent that the police know about these stations, they're not they're not interested. Yeah, well, and, and you have to get a, a local prosecutor. I'm certain. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot yeah. of you know, and and typically the and historically the, the FCC has used the federal marshal service, which of course then requires a federal prosecutor. And typically speaking, in a district like uh, the Southern District of New York, they're they're a little busy. <laughs> they are. I, I I spoke with with a lawyer. And he was like, you know, to get the, the, um, you know, the Justice Department involved, you know, they're not they're not really interested. But I think that's one reasoning of why having these big fines is like, oh, well, if we raise the fines, they'll have a lot of money to go after. But again, the people running these stations, you know, again, former Commissioner O'Reilly, like, they're making a lot of money and they're running scams and they're renting basements for four hundred dollars a month and they're having you know, ads for, you know, for Haitian bakeries and things like that. Well, I think that is, uh, we have so much more to talk about because, I mean, obviously, uh, to mine, we we love to, you're sharing and able to mine your, your experience, not just with, with, uh, unlicensed radio, but your, your really encyclopedic knowledge of, of how communities use radio. Um, and I'll make sure to put in the show notes a, a wonderful uh, documentary you produced for um, for World Radio Day this year, which I did write about earlier this year on Radio Survivor for the FCC, talking about uh, – sorry, sorry, for the BBC, the BBC. <laughs> a very different organization, I yes. hope, uh, uh, you know, where, in which you, you know, were able to survey uh, a number of different community stations um, throughout the world. Uh, you know, each with, with serving their communities in, in different ways. Um, I thought it was it was a great overview of the relevance of radio, which is something I know you've, you you continue to document in all of your work, uh, David Gorin. So we really appreciate you you taking some time with us today. Thanks. Great talking with all of you. My thanks to David Gorin, Brooklyn-based writer, post-production mixer, field recordist, and documentary producer his most recent project is the brooklyn pirate radio sound map uh, as well as even more recently is the um worldwide waves the sounds of community radio uh, for the bbc also our guests on today's episode was christopher terry who who logged off uh 
about a half an hour ago, 45 minutes ago. Pro- professor Christopher Terry is Assistant Professor of Media Law at the University of Minnesota. Thanks to both of our guests for joining us today on Radio Survivor. This is a podcast. You can hear us each week where we discuss media policy, pirate radio, community radio, non-commercial radio, low-power FM radio, college radio, and podcasting as well as the history of this medium. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Please do email us with feedback, questions, show ideas, guest pitches, all of those wonderful things. We'd love to hear from you. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more about how you can support the work as we move into the second half of our first decade on the air, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. You know, in addition to being a podcast that airs each week on, on the internet at radiosurvivor.com, we're also a radio program that is distributed for free to community radio stations all around the country and the world, mostly a whole lot of really wonderful low-power FM radio stations. We mentioned one of those radio stations today, not a low-power FM, a, a full-power community radio station in upstate New York, Wave Farm, um, even Wave Farm. All of these stations uh, air Radio Survivor for free, and it's all made possible by the hard work of the producers, uh, me, Paul Reese-Mandel, Jennifer Waits, as well as the guests of Radio Survivor, the work that they do that then we amplify. All of this uh, happens also with listener support, so you can find out more at radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Jennifer Waits, Paul Riesmandel, who produced today's episode, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.